If I can invite you to remain standing with our scripture reading, which comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 26, verses 47 through 56. While Jesus was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came. With him was a large crowd carrying swords and clubs. They had been sent by the chief priests and elders of the people. His betrayer had given them a sign, Arrest the man I kiss. Just then he came to Jesus and said, Hello, Rabbi. Then he kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came and grabbed Jesus and arrested him. One of those with Jesus reached for his sword. Striking the high priest's slave, he cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put the sword back into its place. All those who use the sword will die by the sword. Or do you think that I'm not able to ask my father? And he will send to me more than twelve battle groups of angels right away. But if I did that, how would the scripture be fulfilled that say this must happen? Then Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come with swords and clubs to arrest me like a thief? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, but you didn't arrest me. But all this has happened so that what the prophet said in the scriptures might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left Jesus and ran away. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I can invite you to be seated, please. And then if you turn your attention to the screen, we're going to watch a short video on the Garden of Gethsemane. After Jesus ate his last supper with his disciples, the time for his personal freedom was quickly passing. The choice to flee Jerusalem or to stay and face suffering was upon him. Jesus went to a tranquil olive grove across the Kidron Valley and out of the city called Gethsemane to pray. There he fell before his father, begging for the cup of suffering to pass if there was any other way. His anguish was so deep and severe that his sweat was as great drops of blood falling from his face. Jesus had to walk through this experience alone. Although his closest friends were nearby, they had fallen asleep, not fully grasping the hour at hand. It was here in Gethsemane that Jesus embraced the will of his Father. It was here that Jesus gave up his freedom to run, and from this garden Jesus was led in chains back across the Kidron Valley as a prisoner to face accusation and judgment. This ancient olive grove in Gethsemane stands as an eternal testament to the personal agony Jesus went through on his way toward the hours ahead that would lead to his death and our salvation. The trees have had carbon and DNA testing. Some of them have been here over 1,000 years and were planted by parent trees. Their pedigree seems to go back to the time of Jesus' lifetime and passion. The Church of All Nations now sits in the gardens where a fourth century Byzantine and a Crusader era chapel once stood. It was built in the early 1900s by architect Antonio Barluzzi, who designed many of the beautiful churches in Israel 
including the chapel at the Mount of Beatitudes. Its design is beautiful and yet allows the visitor to contemplate the dark moment that transpired here, where Jesus willingly surrendered his freedom to the forces set against him. Pilgrims have come to this place for thousands of years to honor that choice and to reverently walk along some of the final footsteps of Jesus. This morning we're going to continue our Lent sermon series where we're taking time to look at some of the places of the Passion. These locations, many of them are in and around Jerusalem. And these are all places where the final events in Jesus' life occurred, from the Passover to the crucifixion and then everything in between. So the past two Sundays, we've looked at two different places. The first being the small community of Bethany, which uh, is outside and actually off of this map, past the blue line there to my... Well, if I'm looking at the screen right here, my right, but it would be you all, my left, if, if you're looking at me. And this was a place where Jesus was eating at the home of Simon the leper. And it's a place where a woman named Mary poured a vial or a glass bottle of perfume over his head, anointing him, preparing him for his burial, but then also to indicate to us that indeed Jesus is not just the Messiah, but he is Christ the King. Last Sunday, we looked at the Mount of Olives and the disciples and, and the way that Jesus and the disciples had, had finished the Passover feast. They'd been in Jerusalem at the upper room. And then they traveled back out of the city in order to go to the Mount of Olives, which is that blue line that you can see. It's a mountain kind of ridge across from Jerusalem looking into the city. And so on the Mount of Olives, Jesus led the disciples in singing songs of praise, even as he knew the events that were about to unfold in the coming hours or day. And so this morning we're going to be talking and staying on the Mount of Olives, although we're looking at a specific place, the Garden of Gethsemane. If you're to visit Israel or Jerusalem today, I can almost guarantee if you're on a Christian tour, this is a site that you will go to. At Gethsemane is the olive grove that, that we know of today is the Garden of Gethsemane. And so there are ancient trees like that video shared of, of them being dated over a thousand years. It amuses me that they talk about the pedigree of the trees. Makes me sound like we're talking about racehorses or something. But... Um, but they have dated these trees and they have, you know, from parent stock and from root stock, they can draw them and connect them to much older times. So there's some possibility being that some of the trees are either direct descendants of trees that Jesus would have walked amongst or possibly even root stock that Jesus would have walked around. And so within the garden, as we saw, was also a church. This church is called Church of All Nations. It was constructed, like the video said, in the last 100 years. It was funded by different nations, and this church is relatively new, although it was built over the foundation of two older churches, one from 1100, so that would be a Crusader-era church that was built by the Crusaders, and then an older one that the Crusaders built over the top of, which was a Byzantine or a Roman-era church from the 4th century. 
So like many of the places and sites that we see in the city of Jerusalem, if you were to go visit them, often the sites we are seeing are not the ones that Jesus would have been in. The Church of the Holy Sepulcher obviously was rebuilt after Jesus' time. It's built on a place where, where many faith traditions believe that that is the place where the cross stood and the tomb was buried and the stone was where Jesus was prepared by Joseph Arimathea and Mary and them as they prepared to lay him in the tomb. But the structures themselves are not the ones that we look at. They're often built over more ancient structures that are usually built over another more ancient structure. And so inside this church that we're looking at this morning in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Church of All Nations, there's this stone, this this square tablet. It's probably maybe 16 feet by 16 feet. It's surrounded by a short wrought iron fence and as pilgrims or or as people come, you are able to approach it and spend time in prayer in front of it. You can touch it and what people believe or tradition says is this is the stone that Jesus went and prayed upon when he was spending time in the Garden of Gethsemane. Whether it's really the stone or not, what we can believe, we can know, we can remember is that in this place, people have come and Jesus came to encounter God, to be in prayer with God. And as people who come later, we can go and remember the ministry of Jesus in this place, and as we'll talk about in a minute. So what can we learn from this garden? I think it's helpful as I think of the Garden of Gethsemane to, to remember where it falls in the larger location in the story of Jesus. Jesus and the disciples have been in Bethany. He's been anointed. They've gone to Jerusalem. They've celebrated the Passover in the upper room. Matthew's gospel is not quite as clear as some of the other gospels in telling us when Judas leaves. So Matthew's gospel, if you and we'll read it later on Monday, Thursday, but it's very clear that Judas is with Jesus there at the Passover feast. What is not as clear is that when Judas left, we know that Judas was in the room when Jesus and the disciples celebrated that last meal. What we do not know is that Judas left, or if as Jesus and the disciples were leaving, Judas kind of took a different route to the Mount of Olives, and his route, of course, took him to the temple and to those that were waiting on him in order that he could betray Jesus. So following the Passover, they've headed to the Mount of Olives, they've sung songs of worship, and now they're at the place called Gethsemane, which is also where an olive press probably would have been. And so this morning in the Scripture, Jesus has arrived in this garden It's getting dark or it's nighttime and he leaves the majority of the disciples while he takes Peter, James, and John, the three leaders within the disciples, and he goes further into the garden with them. He tells them, sit there or sit here while I go over there and pray. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Jesus went farther into the garden and left the three disciples where he prayed these words, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He returned to the disciples and found them asleep. Again, he did it. 
And he went and he prayed to God and said, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Again he returned and found the three disciples sleeping. And a third time he went and said the same prayer, and they were asleep. See, friends, at the Garden of Gethsemane is the place where we see a full-blown example of Jesus and when he was fully human. We see him facing what he knows is before him. We see him him looking at what he knows is going to happen. And he is praying for God to take this away. But he's also praying for God to strengthen him and preparing himself for what he needed, he knows needs to happen as he is God's son. And so in the garden, Jesus is is both, right? He's both fully human and fully, fully God. He knows of God's plan. He knows what is going to happen. He knows what needs to happen. He knows what has to happen. And he knows how the events are going to unfold. But yet in this place, we see his full humanity on display. As he shudders before the cross, before what he knows is going to lead to the cross. And he shudders before what he knows is going to happen right there. And so it's at Gethsemane that we see where Jesus fully faces betrayal. He knows of an arrest. He knows that he is going to be assaulted. He knows that he is going to be crucified. And so three times he asks God to take this cup from him. And then he tells the disciples, Look, the hour has come. The Son of Man is delivered into the hand of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Here comes my betrayer. So this is one of the ones who was called by God to be originally to serve as one of the twelve. Here's the betrayer who is going to not just be a disciple amongst the disciple, but he is also the treasurer amongst the disciple. Here comes the betrayer who would have heard the teachings of Jesus with his own ears. He would have witnessed the miracles of Jesus with his own eyes. Here comes Judas. Judas who betrays Jesus, as the scripture tells us, for 30 pieces of silver. And he's now leading the temple priests, the temple guards toward Jesus as he waits there amongst the olive trees. And since it's nighttime, Judas has arranged with the temple guards that he is going to indicate who Jesus is by a kiss. He is going to portray Jesus with this sign of friendship, this sign of greeting, and now it's an indicator for betrayal. And so as the guards attempt to lay hands on him, chaos ensues. Swords are drawn, the high priest's servant's ear is cut off, and Jesus tells the disciples, put your sword back, for all who draw their sword will die by the sword. Do you not think that I can call on my Father, and he will summon or give me more than twelve legions of angels, but then how would the scripture be fulfilled that, that says what it, how it must say this, happen this way? Okay, so this is what jumps out at me this morning is that even in this chaos, even in this chaos, Jesus is in control. The temple guards are trying to take him in custody. 
Peter and the disciples are drawing whatever weapons they have available. There's a flash of a blade, the high priest's servant's ears falling to the ground. The temple guards in return, if you see them, they're trying to draw their weapons as fast as they can in order to respond to combat. And in all of this, Jesus is in control. And so he says, stop, and it stops. He tells his men, sheath your weapons, and they do. He tells them everything that is happening right now, even as we don't understand it, even as you don't want it to happen. This is part of God's plan. And so even in the chaos, God is in control. See, who thought he was in control? Didn't Judas think that he was in control of this situation? Didn't Judas go and say after the Passover feast, uh, you know, um, I'm going to come to you and, and I'm going to get the temple guards and, and whoever else needs to go with him into the garden. And Judas thinks, I'm in such control that when I kiss Jesus on the cheek, he's not even going to know what I'm doing, but it's going to serve as a sign. See, Judas thought he was in control, but what Jesus shows us is that God is in control. It wasn't Judas. It wasn't the temple guards. It was Jesus. That even as the enemies of God and of himself approach, Jesus doesn't hide. He does not balk. He firmly faces what is before him. Even as he tells the disciples in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. See, so what Jesus is telling the disciples is what is happening of him is that he's allowing it. And not only is he allowing it, but God is allowing it. Even as everything appears chaotic, even as everything appears reactionary, even as everything is unplanned or appears to be unplanned, what Jesus is saying is all of this is part of God's greater plan in offering salvation to all his people. And see, this is where I think this portion or this idea of Jesus being in control is, is hard for us. Because I don't know about you, but isn't it in all of our natures to try and seek control of situations and things that are beyond our control? And so when storms in your life are swirling and, and chaos seems to be the only constant that you face, we all try to find something that we can control. We feel like it gives us measure. We feel like it gives us stability. We feel like uh, it gives us this, this sense of, of being in control of something. But often we find that that's a false sense. And you know, there are some things that no matter how hard we try, we can't control them, can we? And so we might try to fight to get to control even as we cannot or even as, as the chaos that is around us begins to overwhelm us. That is till we look at Jesus. Jesus who said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down at my own accord. Jesus who was able to the, tell the disciples that night in Gethsemane that everything that was happening was not circumstance, it was not random, it was not by chance, but that God was in control. It wasn't Judas or the temple officials or the temple guards or anyone else. It was Jesus. And see, as we read that, 
I think what we can receive or what we can remember is that Jesus invites us to relinquish control. And so when we have chaotic moments in our lives of of just things that are going on that, that are just more than we ourselves can handle, when there's storms that surround us, when the burdens that we carry try to weigh us down, Jesus can be and is in control of all of those things and situations and times and places. He was in control in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, another good picture of of him being in control is is the Gospel of Mark chapter 4. And so Jesus is in the boat and the disciples are rowing across the Sea of Galilee and the Scripture tells us that that Jesus is sleeping. And a storm blows up and and a storm is is tossing this boat back and forth and the disciples are getting worried and, and finally one of them calls out to Jesus and Jesus, what does he say? He wakes up. And with his voice, he stills the chaos waters. He stills the wind. He stills the waves. And he demonstrates that he's in control. To where the disciples even say the words, Look, the wind, the waves, they obey him. See what it is, is Christ is in control of all we give him. And so today is a reminder for us that he can be in control. In control of our sin as, we've, as He forgives every sin that we commit and in offer to Him that He is in control of our lives and that He is in, even in control of His own death as He hands Himself over so that each of us, so that each of us might have life. Now see, His control doesn't completely pull us from the situations that we're in. It doesn't always remove us from the chaos that surrounds us. But what his control does is it grounds us. It gives us hope. And he gives us life. That even in the storm of life, he is in control. And he gives us peace. Amen.